Channing, and I'm Elise, and this is the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We focus on feminist interpretation of scriptures and follow the LDS Come Follow Me manual as a guide for study. We understand scriptures can be a tricky endeavor for readers, but we also believe sacred texts contain compelling examples of loving and liberating relationships with the divine, others, and ourselves. We hope you'll join us in exploring the problems and promises of sacred text with imagination, critique, and celebration to reveal what we feel is the loving and liberating heart of scripture. While Mormonism, with its iconic floral foyer couches, is our background, we follow our faith and our God on the winding path of spirituality over institution and connection over condemnation. We are fellow wanderers, weavers, and doubters. If you found yourself feeling a little too faithful for some and not enough for others, welcome. We've saved you a seat on the soft chairs. This podcast is funded by our listeners' generous donations. If you'd like to support our work, connect with us on Patreon or on our website at www.thefaithfulfeminist.com. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. We are so excited to be here, and we're so excited that you're here with us. We know it's been a long time since we've published an episode, so this kind of feels like a double extra special treat for us. So thanks for being here. We're going to do our best to catch you up from what we have, what content we've missed between our last episode and this episode. But for today, we are going to be covering the entire book of Esther for the dates July 25th through the 31st. So, so happy that you're here. It's going to be amazing. We were so honored to have Amber Richardson on for our last podcast episode, and she shared so much in-depth analysis and interpretation and so much information about the story of David and Bathsheba, as well as the story of Tamar and all of the other women that show up in the book of Second Samuel. We're so grateful to her, grateful for her time and expertise and being willing to share that with all of us. So between then and now, a lot has happened in the text. To make a long story short, basically what has happened is the Israelite kingdom has gone through many different kings, many different cycles of righteousness and unrighteousness, and eventually the Israelites were conquered by the Babylonians, and that is the setting that we find ourselves in for the book of Esther. So covered a long time of content and just a little bit of words, but here we are. We're ready to dive right into the book of Esther. So a little bit of summary for our story today. The summary comes from the Jewish Women's Archive website. They write, quote, In the biblical book named after her, Esther is a young Jewish woman living in the Persian diaspora who finds favor with the king, becomes queen, and risks her life to save the Jewish people from destruction when the court official Haman persuades the king to authorize a genocidal plot against all the Jews of the empire. Written in the diaspora in the late Persian slash early Hellenistic period, the Book of Esther is a Jewish novella that deals with the enduring issues of of preserving Jewish identity and ensuring survival amid cultural pressures and hostile enemies in a foreign land. The rabbis relate to Esther as the one responsible for the deliverance of Israel and compare her to the moon, which shone for Israel in the darkness of night. Like the moon that is born after 30 days, Esther too said, quote, Now I have not been summoned to visit the king for the last 30 days. End quote. 
This story is also connected to the Jewish holiday Purim, which commemorates the saving of the Jewish people from Haman. We're excited to dig in, sift around this story and see what we can find. There's so, so much goodness that's waiting here for us. And one of the first people that we come across in the story of Esther isn't actually the main character. It's another woman who is already queen, and her name is Vashti. So we're going to kind of look at this Esther-Vashti compare-contrast dynamic first, and we're really excited about that. Yeah, one of the articles that I found really fascinating that informed this section of the podcast is an article titled Saying No and Saying Yes – Feminist Models of Change in the Book of Esther by Rabbi Diane Kohler Esses. And the author kind of outlines how in the Book of Esther, the story is structured by twos. There's a hero and a villain. There's Mordecai and Haman. There are two queens. And there are also two words at the heart of each of our queen's responses. There's a no from Vashti and there's a yes from Esther. So if we first start looking at Vashti, the king wants to bring Vashti before his group of like royal bigwig friends to show off Queen Vashti's beauty. In chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment. Therefore, the king was very wroth and his anger burned in him. So we see Vashti's courageous act of outright refusal, right? Vashti is saying, no, I'm not coming forward so that you and all your friends can like gawk over me as an object. And so her refusal to obey a powerful man's command is almost unlike any of the other stories that we've seen of heroines in the Bible thus far. It seems to me that many of the women take on the role of tricksters where they are able to achieve their goals or justice through like stealth and subversion. Whereas Vashti, her refusal is overt. It's bold. It's courageous. It's like there's no trickster about it. She's like, she's flat up saying no and refusing. Yeah, I think I would agree. Like, even as I'm like thinking backwards uh, through the women's stories that we've talked about and covered so far, I would say that that's pretty accurate. We've spent a lot of time celebrating the women who have used the the power and the resources available to them in really clever ways. Um, and at least from what I remember and can think of right now, I think you're right. Like so far, we've we've seen a lot of boldness and movement in saying yes, but we haven't seen as much boldness and movement in a really strict, firm no. no. And I would also say like in my own life, that makes sense. Like I... I have a much more difficult time boldly saying no and just like no period Mm -hmm. instead of like no with an explanation or, you know, whatever. So like a bold no, at least to me as a reader of the text, feels more more strong and yeah, more brave um, than like, not more brave, but just, yeah, it seems different than what we've come across in the text so far. Yeah, and I think because of her the the commitment in her response, the consequence is really high. And so mm-hmm. she becomes banished from the palace forever. And I think that given what we know from the story, the king sees Vashti's response, this flat out no. I think the king sees this as a threat that's going to like inspire other women to overtly disobey and reject their objectification from their husbands. For example, in chapter 1, verse 17, it reads, For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women, so that they shall despise their husbands. 
And when women hear the deed of the queen, thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. And so the king then commands that all wives will give to their husbands honor, both to great and small. And the article that I mentioned earlier says, quote, male egos feature as immensely fragile in this story. The refusal of one woman threatens to demean all men in this great and wealthy empire, end quote. What I found really striking about this particular section of the story was that, actually, we'll see this throughout the rest of the story, but the king really isn't as active of a character as I think the story would like us to believe. The only time that the king makes a decision of his own accord is when he asks Vashti to come out. Mm -hmm. The princes and the, like his consultants or like wise men who are advising the king are actually the ones to make this advisement of, well, hey, like if you, if you let this slide with Vashti, then like, all the women of the kingdom are going to think that they have permission to do this. And like the king is like, oh yeah, you're right. Okay, let's just, let's just put what you said out as a proclamation. And so what I, what I think is really interesting is like, it's not even just the king who's worried about his reputation or how he's appearing in front of these princes, but it's literally like all the men in the room that are like, whoa, your wife did this? Well, then it's going to mean that my wife can do this. All of the wives are going to do this. And I and what I'm finding here, I almost have like a smile on my face thinking about it is like, these men are legitimately terrified that their wives are going to say no to them. Right. And like, who does that say more about? than the men. Like Mm -hmm. if saying no is a form of power, I also think it's an exciting implication made by the text that like say perhaps saying no is one of the simplest ways that women can exercise power. Not to say that it doesn't come without consequence because it absolutely does. And I think women every day take that in mind when they are making choices and decisions. But I do think it's so incredibly relevant to see how one person's actions can influence an entire community of people. And we see that happen again and again throughout all the characters in the story. Yeah, I like that. And I think it also says something too about Vashti's influence. If the men were so threatened that all of the women in the kingdom or in the land would be looking to her, would see her Mm -hmm. as such a powerful and informative presence in the kingdom that they would really follow her example. And perhaps that's, yeah, that speaks to Vashti's character and her, her care for the community, perhaps. Yeah. Well, and I think too, like, I feel very inspired by the, I feel very inspired by Vashti's choice. In some interpretations of Vashti's story, it's believed that the king was asking Vashti to show up to this group of men naked so Mm -hmm. that like they could, yeah, see her and gain pleasure out of viewing her beauty and, you know, whatever it is. And even if, even if that wasn't the case, she was still being objectified by being asked to come into this room so that men could gaze upon her beauty. And like, it wasn't like Vashti was never considered by the king when he asked her to come in. He didn't care Mm -hmm. (laughs) about how she felt about doing this. And I think for her own self-respect and her own self-worth, she said, no, like that my value is in, in myself. And if I'm going to show up 
to a room, I want to do it on an equal playing field. I want to be seen as my whole self. I want to be valued for, for who I am. I'm the queen. I like I have power and I have influence and I'm more than a mere object to just like show off as a form of power. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think that she made this decision lightly. I think that Vashti is a really beautiful example of what it means to stand by one's values, even when there are big consequences for doing so. Yeah, absolutely. And perhaps differently, right? We just like spent all this time lauding Vashti. Mm -hmm. When Esther shows up, Esther doesn't follow Vashti's example. Instead, Esther says yes, and she strategically uses her beauty and her desirability to to avoid the genocide of her people. So Esther says yes to risking her life for her people by entering into the king's chambers with the line that we love so much. Esther says, if I perish, I perish, as if to say, yes, I know what the consequences are, and I am playing the system and going all the way through it. So She risks her life by revealing her identity in solidarity with her people, and she learns the system, she understands the power, and she uses her position to destabilize this murderous authority in order to save her people. I also wanted to read a a passage from the article. The author writes, quote, Our time is also a time of peril, a time of blood-red terror alert, degraded leadership, a threatened environment, multiplying gun violence, Endangered civil liberties dehumanize all of us. We cannot afford to reject either path to redemption. We cannot afford to be self-righteously ideological. Feminists desperately need flexibility, need more than one model in our arsenal. We need Vashti and Esther. We need a no and a yes and, indeed, everything in between. We need those who walk out of a room on principle and those who enter a system and steadily work through it for the sake of a higher vision. We need honesty, and we need stealth. The path to redemption is multiple, not singular. It is subtle, not polarized. There are as many paths as there are women. Indeed, as there are human beings of all genders, as many paths as there are people struggling, fighting. End quote. I really appreciate this interpretation of the book of Esther because it honors the decisions of both Esther and Vashti as valuable, although different means of a revolution. Mm -hmm. First, we see the power from Vashti of refusal and an overt no, the decision to leave a system behind, and that carries power to inspire others to do the same. Some things that come to mind would be like a decision to refuse patterns of generational trauma the decision to break ties with harmful family members, the decision to refuse to call the police, the decision to refuse to participate in racist spaces, etc. So this public refusal is powerful, and yet it's not the only way. There's also power in, yes, in a strategy, in trickery, and in learning the system in order to make it work for the good of your community. I like to believe that there may have been many ways to save the Jewish people in this story, but Esther's journey focuses on the necessity of power in order to make immediate widespread change. And I know that the theme of power was also something that stuck out to you in this story. Yeah, I was really fascinated with my read through this story of just all of the different power dynamics and the way that power shows up in each of the individual relationships that we see throughout this story. So we we have main characters, right? We like Elise had mentioned before, 
characters kind of come in twos. We have the king and Vashti. We have the king and Esther. We have Mordecai and Haman. And these are kind of the four four or five main characters, right? The king and Esther, Mordecai and Haman. And they all have their own relationships with each other too. So I, I kind of just wanted to do like a small case study and maybe like walk through some of these relationships to notice maybe some of the power dynamics or some of the patterns that we see showing up in these stories. So the first relationship that I wanted to talk about was actually the relationship between Esther and Mordecai. Um, I find this relationship really interesting and also incredibly relevant to the story. Esther and Mordecai have a parent-child relationship through adoption. More Esther was Mordecai's uncle's daughter, so I'm not that great at family trees and I'm not sure like what that would make like what their familial relationship is, but they're well, it's like a little bit tricky because some I was reading some commentary that also says that Mordecai and Esther were married. Oh, really? Yes. So I don't know, like, some commentary says daughter, but then they translate the same word to mean wife. So I'm not exactly oh. sure how that factors in. Yeah. So I guess it, it could be either way, right? Mm-hmm. We don't actually really know. I think when I was doing, when I was reading it through, I understood the parent-child relationship. And so, like, in that way, I really appreciated seeing how Mordecai's care for Esther was in the acknowledgement that the closer of proximity that Esther had to power, the more safety and security she would probably have in her life. And so mm-hmm. in, in that way, I kind of felt like Mordecai is caring for Esther by doing what he could to bring her closer into proximity into power by having a potential relationship with the king. And but I also think that that same dynamic would work in, like, a husband-wife yeah. situation, too. Yeah. Like, yeah. he would care enough for her to say, like, I love you and I want you to, like, be be safe. But it would also introduce the power dynamic of, like, oh, are they on, like, are they on a team? And mm-hmm. this is, like, something that they're deciding to do together, which would also bring really exciting implications into the story, too. I also think this conversation or this idea about Esther and Mordecai being a team, whether it's like a parent-child team or a husband-wife team, I also appreciate that the the teamwork makes the dream work uh, dynamic also happens when Esther does gain that proximity to power. When Mordecai comes to her and says like, hey, like, I'm going to die and so is everybody else unless you do something. And Esther's like, don't worry, I got you. We're on the same team. So I kind mm-hmm. of like in that way that that relationship, at least the way that it's presented in the story to me as the reader, feel like that relationship is pretty equitable. And um, I, I was really pleased to find that in my read through. The next relationship that I wanted to look at was the relationship between Mordecai and Haman. So we haven't talked a ton about Haman Um up until this point, he is essentially a government official who is like really excited about gaining power and gaining popularity and recognition. And so basically Haman at one point is like walking through the streets and is expecting everyone to bow down to him because he's a high ranking government official. And Mordecai takes a stance of his own and says, well, my religion, like, I don't want to say like it's against my religion, but like 
basically he says, like, I only bow down before God. Mm -hmm. And Haman takes really personal offense to this and basically says, like, fine, I'm going to kill you because (laughs) because you didn't bow down to me. And um, from then on, like, Haman has a very, like, personal vendetta against Mordecai. Like, he becomes a very high high target on Mordecai's back. And I think that this, this relationship between Mordecai and Haman actually functions interestingly enough. If we kind of zoom out from like the very interpersonal relationship that they have, I think that there's something to be said here about like government officials and like everyday people in the government that maybe are, that are oppressed by the government. One of the trends that I am noticing right now in politics, which with everything that has happened over the last couple of months, is this huge focus and conversation around religious um, freedom. And like, especially with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, how there's this uh, high desire, I'm putting all of this in quotation marks, this high desire to return back to what the Bible says and um, like ban abortion and like focus on religious freedom, right? And what I think is really interesting is like the Babylonians and the Jewish people who are in this community have differing views on religion and spirituality. And what we see Haman doing in his position of power is basically saying, well, if you don't conform to what my ideals are, what I think that you should do, I have the power to make your life miserable. I have the power to eradicate you and all of the people who think like you. And I think I'm noticing or think that I'm seeing a similar trend happening broadly today where a group of people who are centralized in power are saying, well, I think that everyone should be doing it this way. And so because I have the power and ability to take away um, basic human rights, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to try to make it really, really hard for those people to survive and make it through. And so I think that this story has really interesting implications, especially around conversations about religious freedom, like whose religious freedom is honored in this story, whose religious freedom is honored by systems of power and government in this story. Um, So yeah, I don't have like any final like comments about that but I did find the timing of the story and the themes how it intersected with my lived experience as a woman in the United States right now to be really interesting yeah well and there's something to be said for like claiming religious freedom that causes in this story genocide Right. And like not even only in this story but that causes harm and violence repeatedly mm-hmm. to people that causes harm and violence to marginalized people. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that was most striking to me that I didn't know before, um, there's a woman, a Jewish woman on Instagram that I follow, where when Roe v. Wade was being overturned, she said, actually, the overturning of Roe v. Wade infringes on my religious freedom because as a Jewish woman, I have the right to an abortion. Mm-hmm. And the elimination of access to safe abortion care is literally infringing on my religious rights and my religious freedom. And so I think that that's a really important question to ask about, like, 
whose religion is in power? Mm -hmm. And at what point does my quote unquote religious freedom begin to infringe on others? And do I believe that it's justified? Yeah. Yeah. I think those are great questions. The next relationship that I wanted to look at was the relationship between Haman and his wife. Her name is Zuresh. And I found this relationship also to be really interesting, too, because Zuresh is kind of a background character. We actually do hear directly from her in the text, whereas we don't. Oh, yeah, we do. We hear from Esther and we hear from Vashti, which is awesome. So we hear from all the women in the text. This is amazing. I'm really excited about that. Anyway, Zuresh and Haman have also that same kind of like teamwork relationship that Esther and Mordecai have, which is really interesting. So when Haman comes home after having a bad day at work and Mordecai didn't bow down to him, he tells Zuresh all about it. And she's like, well, yeah, that's horrible. You should like, she was the one to come up with the ideas of like, you should create this like it's her idea to come up with the gallows to be so much high and like come up with this proclamation to kill all of the Jewish people. And so Zeresh is really operating kind of behind the scenes of Haman to come up with all of these like really inhumane and like genocidal proclamations and ideas. But at the end of the story, Spoiler alert. Um, Haman dies because, you know, Esther saves her people and the king's really mad. And he says, like, well, what comes around goes around. So, Haman, you're going to die with the same punishment that you plan for other people. But what's really interesting is that Zurich, whose all of these ideas were, they originated with her, she never gets a direct punishment. Some readers might argue that she was punished through the death of Haman. And then we also see later in chapter nine that all of her sons are also killed as well. But again, the text never makes a punishment for her explicit. And so I find that really interesting, right? I feel like a lot of times, like we, some, we often expect to see like person does bad thing in the text person gets punished. But I feel like the text also kind of says like, that doesn't happen as often as we think it does. But I am I am curious about that. As we move on through the story, we encounter the relationship between Esther and the king. And again, kind of like we talked about earlier, the king doesn't really make a lot of his own decisions in the text, with the exception of the decision to ask Vashti to come out. And in the dynamic between the king and Esther, Esther is the active one in the story. She takes risks. She makes moves with the power and the influence that she does have. And one thing that I find really interesting is that the king seems to be just like obsessed with Esther, like just totally taken by her. Like, I don't know if it's like love or lust or like just mad respect for what, you know, who she is and what kind of like, I don't know, beauty she exudes. Like the text alludes, yeah, to her beauty and just, I assume like her kindness and her friendship and her good treatment of other people. So like maybe Esther really is just like that amazing. I don't know. The text never really says why the king is obsessed with her, but I'm pretty sure that he is. and. I find it really interesting, right? In this story that was set up with the opening chapter saying all the men in the country are worried that if the women wear the pants in the relationship, then the like whole kingdom is going to be in trouble. 
And in this story, Esther is the one who wears the pants in the relationship. She calls the dinners. She calls the people to the dinners. She, like, shows up and asks for the things. And, like, sure, the king can, like, offer his scepter to her and, like, say yes. But he's not the one that's, like, coming up with the original ideas. In fact, I would argue he's, like, not really paying attention to the things that he, like, signs or, like, isn't really paying that close attention to, like, know when he's being manipulated. And so I think that this power dynamic and, I and you know, some of that can be attributed to the perspective from the text, like, who is writing the text and who is telling the story, too. Um, but I do think, just to echo what Elise had mentioned earlier, like, Esther really does take a lot of value and stock in her proximity to power and the privilege that she does have. She's smart. She's paying attention. And she's using her power and her privilege in a way that benefits not only herself, but benefits other people. One of the things that I found striking about Esther in this story is also the way that she moves. Like, she doesn't start out being the woman that you were describing where she's like making the decisions and making mm -hmm. power moves. She doesn't start like that in the story. Initially, she's really quiet. It seems like she's passive and she is more acted upon than she is vocal, strategic, and active. She becomes those things towards the end of the story. And because of this change, I found myself reading the story, trying to look for moments or people that kind of like sparked Esther to, to make this transformation within herself or things that pushed her to continue improving her activism and to kind of get out of her comfort zone, perhaps. And I think here we see the relationship between Esther and Mordecai, like you highlighted, where maybe we can see Mordecai as some type of mentor or a provocateur or like a voice of the people. So when Esther hears the decree from Haman, she's fearful and says that she cannot enter the king's court without invitation. This is when her and Mordecai are kind of messaging back and, back and forth, sharing messages. And then Mordecai, when hearing that she is um, withholding or that she's fearful or that she'd rather remain silent than enter into the king's court, he tells her really, really bluntly in chapter four, don't think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape this genocide. Mm -hmm. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And I think with this honest accounting of the situation, like Mar Mordecai isn't holding anything back. He's saying, don't think that you're going to be saved simply because you're the queen, right? Like you are Jewish. And also Mordecai has this faith and trust in God that the Jews will be saved whether or not it's by Esther. And if it's not by Esther, then she is going to perish. And so this honest accounting of the situation, along with a bit of encouragement and persuasion from Mordecai, I think this is one moment where Esther steps into her power and agrees to go to the king, even if it means losing her life. And perhaps another spark within Esther also comes as she begins to think outside of herself as an individual and instead starts to better understand her role as a community member in solidarity with the oppressed group. 
So I see her moving from fear of her like own individual safety, right? I can't go into the king's court because my life might be at risk. And then we see that kind of shift to her recognizing her responsibility on behalf of her people. I think we see Esther's world expanding from court life to communal solidarity with the Jews. And then finally, I like to think that Esther recognizes the way that she has intersecting identities or intersecting privileges and experiences of oppression, because at once she is simultaneously a victim, right? She's a Jewish woman who should be put to death under Haman's decree, and yet she's also an oppressor, right? Her power as queen and her commitment, if she chose to keep her identity a secret, affords her a bit of security and safety while people die beneath her rule. She is the queen. So in this way, I think we see Esther standing in solidarity with marginalized and oppressed groups, as she is one of them, right? That includes her, while simultaneously wielding her privilege and power as a queen in order to save them. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a nice example of intersectionality, the ways that our privilege and oppression don't negate or erase one another. I am seriously so in love with that um, comparison or that context of the Esther story within an intersectional identity. So compelling and so important. And some of the questions that I had as I was moving through this story and thinking about how can I apply this story to my own life? How can I internalize the story and really think about um, the ways that the different characters kind of inform my approach to advocacy efforts or um, the ways that I use my own proximity to power and my own privilege in my life? And these are some of the questions that came up for me. In what ways am I so focused on governmental power that I forget my own? Mm. How can I use my proximity to power to benefit marginalized communities, even if it puts me at risk? How do I feel about using my power and voice to advocate for myself? For example, Vashti and Esther and Haman actually all do this with different motivations and different outcomes. How can I see myself reflected in each one of these characters? What pathways of advocacy do I overlook or underestimate? And this question was inspired by the relationship between um, Esther and Haman. Eventually, when Esther invites Haman into her dinner with the king, and Haman realizes, like, Esther has done this grand setup to illuminate what Haman has done, and Haman realizes, oh, I should have been paying more attention to Esther. I completely overlooked her. So again, this question, what pathways of advocacy do I overlook or underestimate? Maybe because they're not obvious to me. Maybe because I think they're less important or less influential. Also, how do I view, think about, talk about, and treat others who use their power differently than I do? And finally, how can I make space in my advocacy for different uses of power? What can I learn from others? I'm really glad that you asked those questions because I think it invites us to approach the book of Esther in different ways than um, purely the kind of like celebratory, like go Esther story. There's Mm -hmm. more to it here. And I think those questions really bring about the kind of critical reflection. Oh, I also wanted to say something about that, right? Mm -hmm. Like, 
this this story is a celebratory story for the Jewish reader, right? This mm-hmm. is a very important part of their history. They have a whole holiday around it. And I do think that in this particular case, it's important for a Christian reader to read the story differently. Because even though it's part of our like general religious heritage, I do think that it is important to read the story through a Christian lens, especially where Christianity is the dominant religion in the United States. And to ask questions like, oh, how am I playing the oppressor and the oppressed at the same time? Mm -hmm. How can I see myself in each of these characters um, instead of like reading this story simply as a celebration story when that really doesn't actually reflect or resonate with the Christian experience right now. Yeah, no, I think that's really important. And you've, you've said something similar in previous episodes. And I'm grateful that like, time and time again, we need to remind ourselves that this is, it has been appropriated to be our sacred text. Mm -hmm, But this, mm -hmm. these stories have different resonance and therefore different consequences for Uh, a Christian reader and especially for Mormon readers. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you for that reminder. The last thing that we'd like to note from the book of Esther is some of the gender nonconforming characters that we see show up here. And this comes from an article titled Eunuch Inclusive Esther, Queer Theology 101 from the Peterson Toscano website. So there are like a dozen or so named eunuchs in the book of Esther. And our translation of the text we're reading calls them the king's chamberlain people. That's But in other translations and in um, other interpretations, they are called eunuchs. And eunuchs can be understood as gender nonconformists. And in the ancient world, a eunuch was a non-procreative male who was usually castrated and often was castrated before puberty. That's really specific. So just more broadly, eunuchs are understood, especially like in a queer understanding, they can be seen as gender nonconformists. In this story, eunuchs serve as messengers, advisors, guards, assassins, and soldiers. The article writes, quote, In fact, on the chessboard of the Persian court, all non-eunuchs are mostly stuck in place. The king stays in his section of the palace, Esther in hers, and her kinsman, Mordecai, has to sit outside until escorted in. The only people who get to move freely from, from place to place, in and out of the palace, and into every palatial space are the eunuchs, end quote. It is a eunuch named Haggai who oversees the women's quarters and puts Esther through a rigorous beauty and diet regimen. Haggai tells her what to bring into the bedroom chamber when it's her time to perform for the king. It's the eunuch Hatok who sends messages from Esther to Mordecai. Esther needs eunuchs to ferry messages back and forth to set up the lunches for the king and to help her save her people. Without the eunuchs, Esther would have been far from the court. It would have been inaccessible or at least very difficult to access for her. Some of the things that are coming to mind for me as we are rehearsing the eunuchs that show up in the text is that on one hand, it's important interpretive work to turn to gender nonconforming folks that are already present within the text. Like their presence, action, and role in the story is important to make known and to honor. 
And also, I just want to be clear, I don't want us to walk away from this interpretation thinking that gender nonconforming folks are simply here to play like supporting roles in in the main character's story of Esther or in our real lives. And yet the work, the lives, and the educational efforts of gender nonconforming folks often goes unrecognized, even as it influences our daily lives. Like, who knows more about gender, trans issues, bodily autonomy, intersections of gender, race, and class than gender nonconforming folks who have been pushed to the margins and yet continue to fight for their lives and also for the well-being of all folks on the margin, fight for the liberation of all beings. So I think what I'm asking myself this week is, how has my life been shaped by the actions and work of gender nonconforming folks? And if I don't think that it has been shaped in any way, what does that reveal about my bias or my privilege or my interpersonal and public circles? And finally, how can I support, give back, listen, acknowledge, and uplift the work of gender nonconforming folks? I think that's a really important lens to take to the story as well. And I really appreciated what you had said also about understanding that gender nonconforming folks are not playing only supportive roles or supporting roles to like what the main heteronormative or like cisgendered characters in our sacred text or even in our lives, but that they have their own vibrant and important and independent and valuable lives that they are like they are the leading people in their lives and can be leading figures in sports education activism all of the important arenas that we would want them to be in so absolutely widening our broad widening our perspective to see gender non-conforming folks everywhere that they show up Mm -hmm. and honor them for their contributions Friends, we're so grateful that you've joined us for this episode. It feels so good to be back on the podcast. We're really excited to be walking through the scriptures with you and sharing perspectives on sacred text and just all the incredible things that we have waiting here for us. The next couple of weeks, we get to dive really deeply into some of the poetic books of the Bible, which we are seriously, this is the, this is what I have been waiting for. <laughs> like all year I've been like, when are we going to get to Job and Psalms and Proverbs? And we're here finally. So the next couple of weeks are going to be the highlight of my whole year. I think it's, it's going to be a hard tie between this and Lot's wife. So mm-hmm. we're just so genuinely really thrilled and it feels amazing to be back talking about the things that make us excited and uh, that are interesting. So thanks for being a big part of that. We love you and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We know your time and space is sacred, and we are so grateful to have spent ours with you. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be so happy if you left us a loving rating on iTunes and Spotify so other seekers can find us. Financial donations support the many hours of research, work, and devotion to each episode, as well as the everyday costs of creating and publishing the podcast. You can support us on Patreon or through a simple Venmo donation and help us create a world where creators, artists, activists, and beauty makers are valued and paid for their labor. Find us on those platforms and on Instagram as The Faithful Feminists. 
We are deeply grateful for your kindness and encouragement. We love you so much, and we hope to spend more time with you again soon. Bye, friends. Thank you.